0: With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed.
1: Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of
0: why you wear. We're your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. I'm of the opinion that there are certain words in the English language that should be used sparingly, out of a sense of reverence. Words of import, words of weight. And I'm going to use one of those words right now So, please know that I do not use this word, iconoclast, lightly. The subject of our podcast today is the very definition of an iconoclast a rebel spirit and a bleeding heart, a brilliant intellectual, and in my opinion, one of the most talented fashion designers of the 20th century. Over the course of her career, she wrote nine books on the social reforms she deemed necessary for the betterment of life in America. And in the process, She amassed a hefty FBI file. Few people will already know her name, but I promise you that by the end of this episode, many of you will have fallen in love with the inimitable Elizabeth Hawes.
1: And if you do not want to fall in love, perhaps proceed no further, because she was nothing short of fascinating and led a career, or perhaps I should say careers, that really challenged the status quo in every way. Born into an upper-middle-class life in Ridgewood, New Jersey in 1903, Elizabeth Hawes was the second child of John and Henrietta Hawes. Johns was an executive for a steamship company, and her mother, well, her mother was a very unique woman for the era, and her example helped to shape Elizabeth in many ways. Henrietta Hawes had attended college, graduating from Vassar in 1891. And while this was not unheard of, a college education was not exactly typical for women in the late 19th century. So even before meeting her husband, Henrietta was already leading a very proper but somewhat outside-the-box existence, and egalitarian and liberal viewpoints were part and parcel to a Vassar education. So it is perhaps no surprise that she was a strong supporter of the suffrage movement.
0: Yeah, and campaigning um, for women's right for the vote at this time was viewed as radical by some people, but even independent of this. Henrietta also invested her own money in the stock market and local real estate. And because her real estate development efforts had created so many jobs, the local plumbers union made her an honorary member. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> um, when her son was serving in the Navy, Henrietta actually learned Morse code so they could communicate with each other while he was at sea. So it's very important to have a snapshot of what Elizabeth's childhood was like in order to understand the woman that she would become. She would become a fearless woman. Henrietta was also a huge advocate for Montessori education. She wanted her children to develop their interests and their intellect outside of traditional teaching methods. So of course, they had an education that included reading, writing, and arithmetic, but her four children also each had their own garden and they were encouraged to explore their creative sides. So their education in the arts and crafts included basket making, beadwork, and sewing.
1: Elizabeth was especially fond of making dolls clothes. And by age nine, she was making her own wardrobe and clothing for friends. And at age 12, she was designing professionally and selling to local boutiques. Her design inspiration at the time came mainly from popular fashion magazines of the era. She said, quote, I used Vogue and Harper's Bazaar freely, copying sketches or changing them. This further enforced the French legend in my mind. All beautiful clothes were designed in France, and all women, including myself, wanted them. So after high school, Elizabeth would go on to follow in her mother and older sister's footsteps to attend Vassar. And there she studied economics... Um, really gravitating towards socialist-leaning theorists like Thorsten Furblin and Ramsay MacDonald, on whom she wrote her senior thesis. And while Elizabeth immersed herself in these rather serious matters, somewhat to the detriment of her social life, she also indulged her creative side and pursued her interest in fashion design. In her summers off from Vassar, she sought out practical training and construction techniques, and she was keenly aware that her two passions were at odds with one another. You have the exclusive nature of high fashion versus her other socialist inclinations.
0: In the summer of 1923, Haas enrolled in a six-week program at Parsons in New York City and emerged thoroughly dissatisfied. She later wrote, quote, I learned one very important thing, namely that no art school, however satisfactory to others, was ever going to teach me how to design clothes. And she goes on, she says, We kept going to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and taking down Coptic designs, which we transformed painstakingly into colored plates. We took life drawing, but no one ever mentioned the anatomy to me as a student of dress design. Apparently, it did not occur to them that I was going to dress living human beings who had bones and muscles.
1: The following summer, Haas had made up her mind that practical experience was the only way she was going to learn how clothes were really made. So, through a friend, she had arranged an apprenticeship in the works rooms of the department store Bergdorf Goodman, where clothing, based on imported French styles, was made to measure for their custom clients. And this work was extremely difficult. Long hours, working in the summer heat, in the top floor, workrooms, left Elizabeth, quote, So tired, I cried every night when I got home. I learned how expensive clothes were made to order. The French imports came into Bergdorf's before I left that summer. There again were those beautiful clothes which legend assured us could only be designed in France. I decided I better go to Paris to find out what it was all about.
0: And that's exactly what she did. A large portion of the efforts her senior year at Vassar were directed towards raising money to fund this Paris sojourn. She began selling to a local dress shop just off campus and also doing custom work for her classmates, many of whom were from America's most wealthy families. In the summer of 1925, Elizabeth and a classmate from school set sail for Paris. Elizabeth had a letter of introduction to the Paris branch of an American department store, $300, and a diamond ring that had once belonged to her grandmother. This was her contingency plan. If she got herself in trouble, she could pawn the ring and pay for passage home. We're going to find out how things shaped up for Haas in Paris right after this quick sponsor break.
1: Upon her arrival in Paris, Elizabeth fell in with a wealthy American crowd due to her friends and acquaintances at Vassar. While money might not have been an object for her playmates, Elizabeth herself was on a tight budget, and she needed a job as soon as possible. A mother of one of her friends obliged and got her a job working at a copy house. And while we have alluded to this already, now is probably the time that we should really go into the relationship between French and American fashion industries at this time. That French legend that Elizabeth references dates all the way back to the reign of King Louis XIV during the early 1700s. As a means of bolstering his nation's economy, Louis and his finance minister, Colbert, hatched a plan to cultivate France's luxury industries.
0: Yeah, they even went so far as to lure world-class artisans from other countries to move to France so their products would be the very best of the best. Their plan worked, and an international cachet grew up around French-made goods, especially in the fields of fashion. By the 20th century, France had been considered the world's arbiter of style for nearly two centuries, and no other country had yet dared to challenge France's reign. In America especially, the entire fashion industry was built around French, not American fashion design. This is the French legend that Hawes refers to. This is the French legend she will first swallow like a good little American. But this is the French legend that she will later attempt to destroy.
1: With all eyes looking to France to set the pace of fashion, designers and manufacturers all over the world clamored to receive news of or get their hands on the latest Paris fashions. When Elizabeth left New Jersey, a local dress shop and a newspaper engaged her services to send back reports on the newest styles. But the written word, this was only one way this type of information was disseminated there was a rampant, pervasive culture of copying that also existed. So intellectual property laws governing the fashion industries are still evolving today, but had historically been so lax that the practice of copying top designers' work had become institutionalized. Elizabeth's job for the copy house was to attend fashion shows posing as a young American buyer, and she would then commit the designs to memory and frantically put them to the page when she left. Her sketches would then serve as a basis for the lower-priced knockoffs which manufacturers would soon create.
0: The copy house Elizabeth worked for was far from the only one in Paris. It was really this sort of international network. She tells a story of when her boss arranged for boxes of Haute Couture Chanel garments destined for New York to be temporary waylaid at their offices at the copy house so Elizabeth could sketch them. However, <laughs> soon her cover as a young American buyer was blown. And as a now-known copyist, she was pretty much blacklisted from attending these couture or fashion shows. After this, she kind of cobbled together an odd assortment of jobs, working as a Paris correspondent to The New Yorker. She also helped American department store buyers select inventory. But the whole reason that she had come to Paris was eluding her. She wasn't getting the practical training and design that she had come looking for.
1: And it would be another fellow American who would again open doors for Haas. The editor of French Vogue at the time was the Chicago-born and bred Maine Bacher. He himself would later go on to become a designer we all know as Montboucher. But that is really beside the point. Elizabeth went to see him in April of 1928, and after she turned down his offer to work for him at Vogue, he instead offered to introduce her to the fashion designer, Nicole Grueh. And this was a real turning point for her for several reasons. Not only was this a valuable apprenticeship with a respected designer, but it all also introduced her to a network of friends and acquaintances that would prove quite advantageous. Nicole was the sister of the famed avant-garde designer Paul Paré.
0: We will soon do a whole episode on Paré, so keep your eyes peeled for that.
1: Yeah, and like her brother, Nicole ran in the artistic avant-garde circles of Paris. Her husband André was a well-known interior designer of the Art Deco period. And their friends included fellow furniture designer Eileen Gray. And through an American sculptor Elizabeth was dating, she soon counted modern artists, Isamu, Noguchi, Jean Miro, Jean Cocteau, and Alexander Calder among her close friends. Noguchi cast her portrait in bronze, and Haas later displayed his work in her custom salon. Calder's birthday gift to her one year was one of his signature wire pieces. Not a sculpture or a mobile, but a humorous wire chastity belt. After four months, Ha's apprenticeship came to an end. She had the experience that she felt she needed, and after a three-year indoctrination in Paris, she decided it was time to, well, you know, throw the French legend out the window. She wrote, quote, I had simply concluded that if the French could make clothes eminently suited the chic Europeans, there was every reason to suppose that beautiful clothes could and should be designed in the United States for whatever kind of woman lived there.
0: Only four months later, on Elizabeth's 25th birthday, December 16th, 1928, the doors to Hawes Harden opened at 8 West 56th Street in New York City. Her business partner, Rosemary Hardin, was a cousin of a friend from Vassar, and Rosemary's father bankrolled their fledgling custom salon, which they operated as a more relaxed version of a French couture house. They encouraged a casual atmosphere, serving tea and making cocktails while chatting with their clients. Their debut collection was somewhat shocking in its originality. Haas had deviated from everyone's expectations that she would produce clothing in keeping with the Parisian mode. Instead, the clothes revealed that the quality and the construction were on par with French haute couture standards, but the aesthetic was uniquely Haas-hardened. For example, one of the dresses
1: in the collection explicitly deviated from the dominant silhouette of 1928. And this is a time when the straight up and down tubular silhouette was still in vogue. You know, the silhouette that instantly comes to mind when you think 1920s. So to achieve this look, the natural waist was not defined. If a garment had a quote-unquote waistline at all in 1928, it was loosely defined by an inch wide band at the high hip, a good six or seven inches below the natural waistline. Hemlines for daywear were generally a couple of inches below the knee. The Haas-Harden dress, named, quote, 1929, perhaps 1930 Shirley, rebelled against the silhouette entirely. It had an empire waist, hitting directly below the bust, and a hemline that not only skimmed the floor but also had a slight train at the back. The title itself underscores the forward-looking nature of the design, pronouncing it as the future of fashion. Elizabeth often gave her garments cheeky, provocative names that provide another layer of meaning to her
0: clothes. Word spread quickly about this young inventive duo, and only four months into the business, they were already receiving editorial coverage in Harper's Bazaar. And I'm sure this was particularly thrilling to Elizabeth, because this instance of an illustration of one of their gowns appears next to that of a dress by the couturier Madeleine Vionnet, whom Hawes idolized. She even dedicated her first book to her. You might remember from our Birth of the Modern episode that Vionnet is widely held to be one of modern fashion's great architects. Her innovations in construction techniques are awe-inspiring to designers till this day, and she's generally accepted to be the pioneer of the use of the bias cut in dress design. Elizabeth similarly adored the bias cut, which allows fabric to flow like liquid over the body, hugging the natural curves. And this brings us to another critical aspect of Haas's work, and that's her dedication to comfort. This was paramount to her throughout her career, she believed that clothing should be practical and fashionable, fashionable and comfortable. And this was a somewhat revolutionary idea in light of the fact that at the time, many designers only managed to prioritize one of these things. The women who
1: patronized Haas Harden came for something out of the ordinary, as they themselves frequently were. Artists and intellectuals appreciated the cleverness of the designs, and more than one celebrity came for clothing that helped them stand out precisely because of its unusual nature. Actress Lynn Fontaine, leading lady of the Broadway stage, was an early client, and she wore Haas's clothes both on and off the stage. Legend has it that when 23-year-old Catherine Hepburn first arrived in Hollywood, she showed up wearing Elizabeth Haas. What was it about Elizabeth's designs that made them just so special, you may ask? Well, first of all, the modernist concept that form follows function was of supreme importance to her clothes. Clothes should work for the body, not against it. And her clothes were not fussy. Rarely did she use embellishment on her garments. Instead, she used innovative construction
0: techniques to provide visual interest. And striped textiles were a favorite of hers, the myriad of ways that the fabric could be cut to create a desired effect. Mitering striped pieces back together could create V or diamond shapes. Skirts of evening gowns were cut on the bias in a manner that gave the effect of the stripes gently skimming over the hips to suddenly converge in a waterfall effect at the center front. There's a particular silk dress in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art that's a supreme example of this effect. It's called alimony, as in the required spousal financial support after a divorce. We told you she was sassy. Equally smart is another ensemble in
1: the Met's collection called Pandora, and it ultimately sums up what Hawes was all about during this phase of her career. The ensemble is a floor-length evening coat and dress. And by all first appearances, this long-sleeved coat is another of her favorite striped textiles. But if you look closer, the effect of the stripes is achieved by alternating strips of wide, red, and cream silk panels sewn together vertically.
0: Elizabeth named the dress Pandora in reference to Greek mythology's first woman on Earth, created by the god Hephaestus who was the god of craftsmanship. Supposedly, he created her from water and clay. And as a wedding gift, the god Zeus gave Pandora a box or a jar, which he commanded that she never open. Um, you know, of course, being a human with flaws, Pandora disobeys this command and she peeks inside, Out rushes all the evil that is said to exist in the world today. But what's interesting is, is that in some interpretations of this myth, the jar or box is thought to not reference a container, but a vagina. Haas is giving a nod to this interpretation by including the little red slashes details at the back of the jacket. And the dress beneath the jacket is 99% cream. Only a tiny, small diamond shape inserted between the breasts of the intricately constructed bodice is red, and this is thought to be an allusion to the female clitoris.
1: Elizabeth made her first version of this ensemble in 1931 and another in at least one other subsequent collection. Its genius was its subtlety. If you did not care to investigate beyond its looks, it was a sublime couture-quality creation of exceptional beauty and originality. But if you care to delve deeper, this was the stuff of revolution. The ensemble is fiercely feminist and calls into question the misogyny inherent in this particular interpretation of the Pandora myth which suggests really that female sexuality is the root of all the world's evil. It was exactly this type of clever clothing that Elizabeth's customers really appreciated about her. She did not shy away from controversial topics, but she rather infused her creations with her personal thoughts on politics, art, and current events. In her summer 1933 collection alone, a lace evening dress was named Revolt of the Masses. There was another, a chiffon and cotton dinner dress named Farm Relief, while a seductive negligee was titled International Relations. There was also a crepe skirt and chenille blouse ensemble named Diego Rivera, after the Mexican artist, who was an avowed communist and husband of Frida Kahlo.
0: The year 1930 saw many changes for Haas. Not only had the stock market tanked the previous fall, putting a damper on her business, Rosemary also decided that this was a really good time to just walk away from the partnership. And she sold her share of the business to Elizabeth for the whopping sum of one (laughs) dollar. That was nice of her. (laughs) I know. It's very sweet, right? It was their daddy's money, so. It was around the same time that Haas married her first husband, Ralph Jester, the sculptor she had been dating in Paris. By her own account, the marriage was given very little consideration, and the proposal and acceptance were all executed by way of telegram. Approximately three years later, they divorced.
1: Overall, though, the 1930s were pretty good to Haas. Her business, unlike so many others, survived the Depression because she worked hard and she had a loyal New York client base. Her fame grew in 1932 when the department store Lord & Taylor launched a campaign to promote fresh American design talent. And this may be par for the course now, but in the 1930s, the French legend remained strong in the minds of consumers and American manufacturers. The names of French designers filled the fashion press, while the designers working behind the scenes of the American clothing industry, either adapting to French designs or creating their own, well, they largely remained unknown to the public. The manufacturers promoted their label, not the identities of their designers.
0: So what Lord & Taylor started, promoting the names of American designers like Hawes, Muriel King, Claire Potter, this really set in motion winds of change. American fashion began to establish its own identity, separate from what was happening in Paris. If Haas wasn't already a household name, the American press would soon make her one. They courted her opinion on all things fashion and culture. And Haas obliged with enthusiasm, penning spirited articles for a huge number of publications, including McCall's, Ladies' Home Journal, Reader's Digest, Woman's Home Companion, the Detroit Free Press, and even a short-lived progressive New York newspaper called PM. From their pages, Haas's iconoclastic views on necessary social reform beat like a lifeline to progress. She spoke rationally, yet unabashedly, on subjects that included not only fashion and beauty, but also gender, labor, and race relations.
1: I don't know about you, April, but when I was reading Haas' work, I really encountered some shocking radical sentiments. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Such as, quote, only economically independent women could meet men, love them, marry them with any degrees of honesty
0: in the relationship. And she also felt like the fact that child care was, quote, not purely a female problem. <gasps> <laughs> she said if women would like to have a job outside the home, they should be able to do that. And that fathers, quote, who aren't willing to do 30 hours a week of baby care while their wives work, they should not be fathers.
1: and how about the one where everyone would benefit from increased research on women's health and curing cancer. Discussing matters of health and sexuality was actually very taboo at this time. In the minds of some, Ha's willingness to publicly engage these topics meant she was a troublemaker. In the hearts of others, though, she was a hero willing to create dialogue around subjects that no one else would acknowledge.
0: Her first book, Fashion is Spinach, was a 1938 bestseller and an acerbic takedown of the fashion industry at large. It questioned the supremacy of Paris and advocated for comfort and functionality in all clothing, regardless of price point. It's really hard to imagine how many of her ideas that we wholly embrace today were dreamed radical and unorthodox at the time. She was really just simply ahead of her time
1: and not one to fear deviating from social norms. And there's a particular story that I just loved about her, and she's strolling down Fifth Avenue with a friend in the 1930s. She's wearing a full skirt that was in opposition to the slim silhouette of that time. She's wearing no hat, no lipstick. The effect was so shocking to her fellow New Yorkers on the street, people stopped to stare and move out of her way. I mean, women simply did not step out of doors without a hat and full makeup at this time. Her friend recalled reaching their destination, Bergdorf Goodman, and when the owner of the department store saw hers, he became incredibly angry, got red in the face, and declared her crazy. Wow.
0: (laughs) I feel like there's a whole lot to unpack there. I wish we could spend 15 minutes examining that from a feminist standpoint, but we don't have time. Um, We do have time, however, for another funny story that speaks to the point that At the height of her popularity, Haas often threw society's rules about her own wardrobe out the window. She was often sighted in Manhattan wearing blue jeans. (gasps) Denim jeans, you've got to be kidding me. (laughs) That gets better. In 1937, she married stage director and filmmaker Joseph Losey. The two had many things in common as creatives with socialist leanings. Prior to the marriage, they had even traveled to the Soviet Union together to see this great experiment of communism firsthand. At least from a clothing standpoint, though, Haas returned unimpressed. She had gone with the hopes of gleaning insight into mass production, which she herself had started experimenting with stateside. But I'm getting off track. In my research on Haas, I actually read hundreds and hundreds of pages of her unpublished writings from the tail end of her life. She tells the story of her wedding to Losey. And I'm going to do this verbatim exactly as she typed it and then quite funnily hand-corrected it on the page. This is what she wrote. She wrote, quote, I wore blue jeans to my marriage to Mr. Losey. We went over the Vermont border to a small New York state town because in Vermont I couldn't be married having been divorced. The Justice of the Peace asked Mr. Losey, do you take this man to be your wife? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> she goes on to say— From the befogged look on the justice's face from the time he saw this female in blue jeans, I'm not sure if he said that on purpose, but maybe. Who ever heard of a female being married in blue jeans in 1937?
1: I love that story. And yeah, women in pants, let alone blue jeans, was enough to cause eyebrows to raise and tongues to wag in the 1930s. Jeans were meant for men, April, engaged in hard labor. They were not fashionable, and they certainly were not for women. However, I think today's multi-million dollar denim industry would beg to differ. The following year, Haas gave birth to her one and only child, their son Gavrik. In light of her career and the flexibility of her husband's, Joe assumed the majority of the child-rearing duties, upending traditional gender roles, something, as we know, Elizabeth put very little stock in. Well, we will get to this more in a minute after this sponsor break. As a working woman who was the owner of her own business, Hawes was lucky that her son could accompany her to work when her husband was working on his own creative endeavors. Gavrick recently recounted that one of his earliest memories was being kept busy in his mother's workrooms by being given a magnet. The game was to crawl about and pick up the dropstick pins, which littered the floor. And when he got a bit older, he was put to task ironing and pressing garments.
0: Haas's new understanding of the plights of working mothers was surely part of her decision to radically alter the course of her career, but not the entire reason. After 11 successful years as a darling of American fashion, her belief in the benefits of a populist society continued to nag at her, and her ultra-expensive custom clothing business was actually the antithesis of a more egalitarian America. On multiple occasions, she had attempted to translate her designs into mass production so that everyone could afford her work. But these licensing deals with department stores and manufacturers usually left her severely disappointed because the licensees cared more about being associated with the Haas name than the fit or quality of the product.
1: In her fourth book, Why Women Cry, or Winches with Wrenches, she describes the moment she decided to throw in the towel. Finally, Owing to disgust with my retail business and the fact I saw the war coming up and thought it would probably do the business in, I closed the place up in January 1940.
0: But being Elizabeth Hawes, she did not go quietly. Gavick recounts a story of a client coming to her during the war requesting a silk dress. Silk was rationed and in short supply. He says his mother went to a flag supplier and bought up dozens of silk flags from countries all over the world. She then pieced them together to create this sort of colorful patchwork textile. And she intentionally placed the flags of the Axis Powers on the derriere of the dress so the wearer would be forced to sit on them. (laughs) And there's a sketch in the collection of the Brooklyn Museum of Art that documents a version of this, of of the same concept. So she was definitely dabbling in fashion here and there after she closed her custom salon, um, including the fact that she designed women's uniforms for the Red Cross But the real thrust of Hawes' efforts at this time were of more of a philanthropic nature. She did a brief stint as an editor for an upstart newspaper for low-income readership. And when she did this, she realized that the privileges afforded to her up to this point in her life were really alienating her from truly understanding the problems of the working class whom she espoused to champion. For a year and a half after this, she worked as an advocate for childcare for the multitudes of mothers working in wartime jobs. This only solidified her suspicion that her empathy, while earnest, was actually lacking in experience.
1: In 1942, she took an unskilled labor position at the Wright Aeronautical in New Jersey, the world's largest airplane engine plant. She worked the graveyard shift for 60 cents an hour precision, grinding and polishing parts. In the words of Haas biographer Bettina Birch, quote, In this war plant, Liz learned quite a few things that she hadn't been taught at Vassar. She discovered women who thought feminism was a dirty word. She discovered women who were racists. She realized how difficult it was for an average woman to cope with a job without having childcare or a maid. Women could not be thought of as some homogenous mass with homogenous needs. She became wary of the equal rights feminist ideology of the day, which tried to speak for all women at once.
0: Her other great realization during her time at Wright was the importance of unions in protecting workers' rights. Quote, in union there is strength, she wrote. The female workers at the plant were generally treated as necessary but temporary dilettantes. Her position at the aeronautics factory fell under the organization of the United Auto Workers Union, and Elizabeth happily joined and began organizing on behalf of her fellow co-workers. By the time she left Wright in May of 1943, she had become a full-fledged professional labor organizer.
1: She took a few months off to finish her book, Why Women Cry, which she dedicated to, quote, all women who have ever felt that if, without a vacation of some sort, that they must wash that dish, iron that shirt, cook that meal, see that child, kiss that husband again, they would go mad, end quote. The book was another hit and chronicled the general plight of women at the time, as well as her war work. After this, Detroit would be Hawes's next destination. Her marriage to Joe Losey was over, and he'd already moved to Hollywood at this time, which makes perfect sense given his career. In Detroit, she found that not even her small amount of celebrity made up for the fact that union organizers were not particularly welcome at all levels of Detroit society. And her fifth book, Hurry Up, Please, It's Time?, which takes its name from a line from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, records her experience working for the United Auto Workers Union, or UAW. A theme running throughout the book are gender relations within the union itself. Haas documents the organization's systemic sexism and struggle with sexual abuses of power.
0: She returned to New York in 1945 with a desire to return to the fashion industry and her former career that blended designing and writing but she was surprised to find herself locked out. She'd only been away a few years, but unbeknownst to her, she had been the subject of FBI scrutiny for several years. Part of this investigation included calling known friends and associates and questioning them about whether or not Haas might have had any ties to the Communist Party. And I just want to be clear here that, while Haas is forthright in her writing about her sympathies for the socialist cause Her take on this was utopian, where gender inequalities were erased, all citizens had a generous standard of living, and this included, to her, smartly designed and priced clothing. She writes that everyone should be able to have a steak dinner occasionally. Everyone should be able to go on a beach vacation once a year if they want. There's actually no evidence that Haas had official ties to the Communist Party, and she was vehemently and loudly anti-fascist. However, the FBI had created a
1: theoretical arc villain out of Hawes when they confused her and another Elizabeth Hawes, who had also graduated from Vassar four years after her. Elizabeth Day Hawes, who went on to become a union organizer in the Deep South's textile mills, leading strikes and engaging in general rabble-rousing. Both Hawes held leftist views, but Day Hawes, her activities included encouraging active physical resistance, while our Haas wielded the pin as her weapon in the battle for social change. Regardless of the mix-up, our Haas ended up with an FBI file that was a conflation of the two, both their activities combined. So let's just say the ensuing investigation did nothing to help rebuild her fashion career. Customers and even manufacturers were afraid of being associated with her during this Red Scare Cold War era, and
0: New York did not welcome their darling back with open arms. So to this end, Haas bailed to the Caribbean to write another book. This was her only source of income at this point. Anything But Love was published in 1948 and is a scathing send-up of the media couched in Haas' signature wit and charm. She pointed out to women that they were the unwitting victims of the advertising industry's efforts to exploit their insecurities as a means of indoctrinating them as customers. She wrote the book on St. Croix the island which would become her home off and on for the next three years or so. Her 1951 book, But Say It Politely, details her time in St. Croix, and this book is a commentary on race relations on the island. She became very close friends and drinking buddies with two local men. Um, Their names were Lars and Avi, and she writes about them extensively in the book. Her failed attempt to re-enter the New York fashion scene in 1948 can be partially credited on the rise of Christian Dior's new look silhouette, and to a lesser extent, the rumors that were swirling around her interracial relationships in St. Croix.
1: Elizabeth felt there was little left for her in New York in the early 1950s, and the presence of her ex-husband and her younger sister in Los Angeles sent her out west. There she hoped to cobble together freelance design gigs for the film industry, but this was harder than she had expected given the connection she had. Her creative output then became more exploratory and theoretical. She began playing with layered dressing and making tunics which lent themselves to being unisex or amisextrous, as she liked to say. In her thoughts on gender-free dressing, she found commonality with a California designer who was making a splash in his own right, Rudy Gernreich. And like Haas, he was very much a maverick. Perhaps he's most famous for his monokini, which was a one-piece bathing suit that revealed the breasts. Uh, He was also an early proponent of miniskirts as well. And Geinrich, really being part of a younger generation than Haas, was already a fan of her work and had read her books. And I think she really enjoyed the company of this much younger circle who appreciated many of her ideas, which had been a tough pill to swallow for her own generation.
0: Apparently, she was also quite fond of the mod fashions of the 1960s, wearing them herself. In her early 60s at the time, a friend wrote account of her, what she was wearing, her style at the time. Her friend wrote, quote, she dressed in mini shifts as precise as a T-square. I remember bright yellow and clear red. Her legs were in black fishnet whore stockings and high spike-heeled shoes. She folded a circular cut coat about herself and topped this all off with a straight-brimmed hat. She was a handsome, maud witch. I love
1: that. description <laughs> <Just pushing her.
0: laughs> Yeah, and it's funny because this reference to her being a witch – In some of her writings um, that I was referencing from later in her life, she refers to herself as a witch. In one passage, she wrote, I don't mean to set myself up as a witch, although if you enjoy witches, as I do, think of me that way. (laughs) Um, But really what she was trying to say here, she was was referring to her own prescience and her social commentary and also the forward-looking nature of her clothing. So, Cass, shall we throw out a few of her ideas which have now more or less come true? Let's do it. In 1942,
1: she predicted the demise of the use of traditional textiles and clothing and predicted the rise of something akin to 3D printing. This, as we know, is indeed now possible, and a lot of money is currently being poured into the development of this technology, as it's believed that this is very much the future of fashion.
0: I'd say, though, that the biggest of these predictions of hers was regarding the eradication of gender distinctions in dress. Hawes first introduced the notion of skirts for men in 1938 by titling one of the chapters in fashion as spinach, Men Might Like Skirts. Far from being a literal suggestion, um, this provocative title was used more to tease out the theme of the chapter, which was, why do men continue to wear clothing that they find horribly uncomfortable? And it would be another three decades before Haas would put this idea of skirts for men into practice. And she did this um, for an exhibition that was held at the Fashion Institute of Technology in 1967. And this was a joint exhibition with her friend, Rudy Gerdreich. She produced men's kilts. And this, this exhibition was more or less of a retrospective of her visionary career. Haas says that she was very touched by this final validation
1: about this, Haas said, quote, when will American males be as free to dress to please themselves as our females now are? Fifty years later, this question still remains part of the contemporary fashion discourse, with the skirt standing along as one of the last, quote-unquote, gendered garments. Actor Jaden Smith made headlines around the world when he appeared in a 2016 Louis Vuitton women's wear ad campaign wearing a skirt alongside female models. You also have the visionary fashion designer Rick Owens, who has repeatedly promoted this alternate version of masculine attire in his menswear collections, as has the designer Tom Brown, who most enthusiastically embraced the skirt in his menswear collection for spring 2018.
0: And this is not only the stuff of runways. Uh, The last couple of summers in New York, plenty of avant-garde gentlemen, I've seen them on the street figuring out that when it's hot, a long tunic or a kilt is their best bet. And whenever I see them, I smile to myself and think how happy it would make Elizabeth Hawes.
1: And the occasion of the 1967 exhibition in New York lured Hawes back to the city for good. She took up residence at the famed bastion of bohemian culture, the Hotel Chelsea. And there she continued to bang out words on her typewriter, but she would publish no more books. Her last book, It's Still Spinach, a psychological examination of why people wear the clothes they do, was published in 1954.
0: Dating all the way back to the 1930s, Haas was known for her love of gin and tonics. During her Union days, she saw hard drinking as a tool to get in good with the boys. And in St. Croix, lazy warm days were often passed drinking with Lars and Avi on the beach. But by the late 1960s, her alcoholism was getting the better of her. In the unpublished writings I've referred to from time to time, some of them very much have the feeling of pouring out on the page, courtesy of a drunken rant. On September 6, 1971, Elizabeth Hawes passed away at the Hotel Chelsea from cirrhosis of the liver.
1: We lost you far too young, Elizabeth. But during her 68 years, she put an indelible mark on the earth, an iconoclast who was a century ahead of her time.
0: And I can't help but think that if the Broad City ladies are listening, Alana, Abby, please add Elizabeth Hawes to your list of badass witches. She would have loved that. (laughs) We would like to extend a warm thank you to Gavrik Losey for his generosity in sharing recollections of his mother. In many ways, we're all still trying to catch up with you, Lizzie.
1: Until next week, we hope you all find comfort in getting dressed.
0: Please follow us on Instagram for visuals that augment each week's episode, at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. That's at dressed underscore podcast. If you'd like to email us, you can reach us at dress at howstuffworks.com.